Welcome to Big 20, roundtable discussion where GMs from all walks of life discuss gaming and field questions from viewers. Hosts this week are, we'll start with Dan. Hey, this is Dan from Fear the Boot. And Pete. All right, awesome. I, I, you know, I need a cue. It's cool. <laughs> I'm Pete Petrusha. I uh, make games with Imagining Games. I run conventions for the Indie Game Developer Network, and I write for Gnome Studio. I write GM advice. And I'm Scrim. I uh, am a player and GM at the Shadowcasters Network. Uh, you can catch me tomorrow night playing some Leverage. This episode, we're going to talk about plot twists. Who wants to go first? Plot twist, none of us do. <laughs> um yeah we were talking before the show what's a plot twist exactly it's uh we were kind of trying to nail it down but um uh there's a lot of um i, I feel and I, I think dan you echoed this i feel like i don't always remember like oh that was the plot twistiest movie i ever saw or the um biggest twist ending i i i don't note them as like yes you know make that twist happen i'm not sure yeah i mean i think a plot twist is most easily described as having subverted the expectation of the people that are consuming the media you know that based on the cues that they're picking up whether these are social cues or genre cues or whatever it may be they're expecting things to go one particular direction and then it suddenly turns out that what they thought was going on up to this point was not true. And yeah, I was trying to look up some of these before the show because I was having trouble remembering things I've consumed that had a plot twist. And I don't know why that's such a blank space in my memory. Uh, but I, one of the ones I mentioned earlier is one that happens pretty early on within the, the, bit of entertainment question is the first time I saw the matrix. Now, of course, now everybody knows what the matrix is and what it's about, but the, the trailers really didn't reveal a whole lot. And I went into that movie pretty blind. Um, I had not seen any of the stuff. It was kind of spun from like dark city. And so as I was watching that, you know, I saw the, the social cues that here's, a rather shady looking woman sitting in a basement and people that seem reasonable and seem to be representatives of order and of authority and of decency, you know, police and what appeared to be an FBI agent had cornered this woman and were going to bring her in. And all of a sudden she's exhibiting superpowers. And of course this is Trinity fighting the, the cops in the matrix and I thought she was a bad guy. I mean, I thought until they do the reveal, I mean, it's early-ish in the movie, but I mean, it's not until 20 minutes later, maybe, that they do the reveal of what's going on. I was fully convinced that these were the bad guys and the, the cops and the agents and whatnot were kind of the good guys that just were being rather secretive about what they were doing. But once again, how did I go down that road? Well, the best way I can give you is... Uh, you know, there were cues present that misled me on what was going on, but didn't necessarily hide the, the truth from me. And we'll come back to that when we talk about bad plot twists. 
Pete, your thoughts? Um, you know, we were talking about plot twists. I, I think, especially when we get to RPGs, it's interesting because, you know, we're not all watching the same thing. So plot twists happen easier to, you know, it may be in a good and bad way. <laughs> um, also, we are co-authoring together. Um, so, you know, these are interesting twists that I think make plot twists sometimes a lot more obvious in a role-playing game than maybe in something that's fully fashioned and designed so that you interpret it in one way, um, you know, leading you on for some level, level of suspense or big surprise, like a, a movie would. Well, yeah, because, I mean, there's, there's many things going on in a role-playing game that are not in unidirectional entertainment. Uh, if you read or if you're watching a movie, if you're doing something that is passive consumption of entertainment, you're only able to accept what they present. In a role-playing game, you have this horrible ability to ask questions. <laughs> you know, you can, you can chase the clues that were not otherwise intended for you to see yet. And so if you pick up something really early on, then you're going to eat that Game Master's uh, plot twist for breakfast, which I think one of the bits of advice that I'm going to give up front is in a role-playing game, I don't think you necessarily want to set out to have the objective of a plot twist. I think that's kind of a happy accident. Right, because right. Because I, 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 there are ways you can make them happen, but I think they're all very ham-fisted. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that because like my favorite plot twist that I have in memory, I think only works because we were new to RPGs and it was like in high school. <laughs> so it's mm, a little sophomore. Mm. Um, I had a, a, like a D&D world were uh, homebrew and there was only like this council of wizards very much like you know lord of the rings like the only wizards of note were just the, the several that were amazing and they each had one school of magic so there was one the first one that they really encountered uh was the the grand illusionist so they, they went to like his floating castle and entered it and all kinds of crazy things happened of their worst nightmares and of you know their greatest hopes and aspirations um and it was all a fake dream basically like they went through and it all went horribly wrong at the end as they got to the climax and it was designed to be like if they would catch on they could break through but they all died basically but it was a grand illusion <laughs> um so then they actually walked through um and we're we're told that it was basically like they were they were shown this so that they wouldn't actually die on their first approach because this is what the grand illusionist does to protect themselves um and it was amazing and all the players rejoiced and they were like, holy shit, I can't believe this happened. He wouldn't take us to the, the grand end of the campaign now and all, you know, and we had a wonderful turn of events. But like Dan said, it's funny because now it's not something I would recommend, right? Like mm -hmm, that's very mm -hmm. ham-fisted. Um, the expectations were poorly, um, you know, there'd just be players who'd be like, why did we have that session? <laughs> which is okay when you have a group of people in high school and you play all the time. Right. But not as adults. Yeah. Be more yeah. the, the couple that I was thinking of as I was preparing for this one, this is probably one of the more famous ones, certainly in relatively recent entertainment is the sixth sense. Uh, yeah. The sort of breakout movie from night Shyamalan where you know Bruce Willis plays a therapist who in the prologue of the movie is shot while failing to help a kid who is struggling with these, these visions. And then the next time you see him, it's years later, and his latest patient is a young child who is struggling with a very similar thing, 
and he's trying to sort it out and help this child in a way he felt to help the other child. Of course, if you've seen the movie, and if not, I'm sorry, but like 25 year old spoilers, <laughs> uh, it, it turns out that Bruce Willis is dead. And as a ghost, he is trying to right the wrongs that he, you know, his biggest failure in life that led to his death. And he's trying to do it right and help this kid in a way he failed to help the other kid. And the plot twist you find out at the end is he's dead. And one of the things that I've got to give credit to M. Knight for is he did it right in that it subverts the audience expectations because he doesn't lay out anywhere that you're watching a ghost try to help somebody. You know, you get the sense this is a very well-orchestrated character story about a man struggling with his failures, struggling with a family that's breaking down because of his session with those failures you know you see these hints he's contexted in the real world and then it turns out those are all his delusions but the clues are all there the consistency is there he doesn't do anything that just you know it, it was no last minute ass pull which is a huge no-no in storytelling um i guess since i've started on this i'll, I'll give one of the other examples which is mass effect 3 if you've played through that video game trilogy, you find out at the very end that the intergalactic threat you've been working this whole time to stop is being run by a character and the fate of all the galaxy is going to be decided by a character who's only introduced in the last 15 minutes of the game. That's a terribly done plot twist. Um, there's nothing that because you know it, it wasn't a subversion of expectations. Yeah, right. Like there's no suspense, there's no thrill. Right, there's right. Just the, oh shit! There's yeah, this it, new thing, and that's surprise. all that mattered. So all my thought and all my engagement into what could be going on, or what could save the day, or what could help us, uh, didn't matter. Right. That's probably the big takeaway: is you don't want to make people's time, like their investment, a waste. Yeah, yeah, because if it's a subversion of expectations, that's one thing. If it's something the clues were there for, but you just weren't following, that's one thing. But if you just yank something out of your butt at the end, it's, it might as well be improv theater. <laughs> you, you just made something up and expect me to feel like I was shocked by that. And it's like, well, no, you, you just cheated me out of all the hours of my life I spent getting here. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not a subversion of anything. So Gage, uh, was it Gage? Uh, Game with Gage made a point earlier on. Of, I was listing some plot twists and said Star Wars Episode Five. And I was like, well, is that a plot twist or is it a reveal that Darth Vader's Luke's father? But um, uh, sorry, spoilers. But um, I think I think uh, and and he said, you know, it it changed the tone. It changed how everything was working. And he talks about his father, and he you hear about his father, and he wishes he knew him this whole time. He, it's like it's important to him that who his father was and what he did, um, and continuing his legacy. So then I think that's why you're right that it is a a twist, not a reveal, because it matters so much to Luke from the start who his father is. And so when he finds out it's his enemy, it's the, you know, it, it changes him forever. It changes the course, right? Like it changes mm. like the whole time. I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I'm going to kill him, you know? And then you're like, but wait, no, I can't. What am I going to yeah. do now? Yeah. Well, I'm guessing. And am I going to end up like him? And yeah. so I think that's the, I think part of it is to give that, 
investment. I think usual suspects is another one. They're, they're just so invested in finding this guy and you don't even think like, you're like, Oh, this mystical guys are so sad. Where is, where is he? Yeah. And then when at the, the end, you're just like, I don't know that, that, that one blew my mind. <laughs> it's a good movie. Same here. It was my favorite movie for at mm. least 10 years, just because mm. that, that plot twist, you know, and it's one of the few movies that I literally did just watch it immediately over again. Yeah. 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 Like, and then you can see the clues. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> I love it. You know, with what Dan said with the sixth sense, it's really got me thinking like, you know, the subversion where, okay, the big reveal is at the end, like, Hey, the guy, the whole time was a ghost, you know, the, the protagonist, the character, we, we never just, Imagine that could be the case um, because the central focal point was that he's helping this kid who sees ghosts. You know, he's not the one that sees ghosts. Oh, I mean, he doesn't even believe in ghosts. How could he be a ghost? Um, can you pull that off in a role-playing game? Because like in my head, the ways you do that are things like having another player in on it or sometimes something collaboratively. Like I had a great game of dream chaser one time where it was along the lines of sixth sense Two people played different parts of one personality. Uh, mm. It was a split personality. And the third person at the end, because they had collaborative control as well, where we're able to tie it in that like, oh shit, I was the third one the whole time. You know, and that was fun, but the players were able to co-author. So they can, you know, in a way it's actually, actually it's good and bad because it's the bad thing too. Because he basically was able to do that. Like, you know, the ass pull at the end be like, shit, you know, like, it could be this because that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I think in some ways, role-playing games are a, they're a little garden of potential plot twists. But you as the game master cannot be attached to any particular one of them. Because if you are trying to simply engineer a plot twist for plot twist's sake, then you're going to go to a lot of really crappy links to protect that plot twist uh you know you're going to hide information the party should have to you know suspect that something is going on the way that i put this prior recording is i said you know if the audience is not left kicking themselves in the ass for having missed this you did it wrong um but having said that within a role-playing game you know what does the game master do well the game master presents a world where events are occurring and many, many parties are involved, these parties being not just the player characters, but also the non-player characters. And the non-player characters, if they are well-designed, and if this is the type of game you're running, they're going to be complicated. You know, meaning they're not always going to be entirely honest about what it is they want, why they're there. They're not going to be any more forthcoming with their secrets than the party is. And so the party, which typically they're paranoid, judgmental, and presumptuous to begin with, <laughs> is going to make all kinds of wrong assumptions. And you have never at any point been inconsistent to your world, but at the end, they are just convinced the one guy is the villain because he fits the profile of what they expect a villain to look like. Yeah. When you've never deviated from what's going on. You know, you weren't necessarily, you might've been hoping this happened, but the fact that it turns out that the scary wizard on the hill is actually protecting the town from the machinations of the humble parson. Well, I mean, that was their assumption. That was, I mean, you may not have hidden anything from them, 
But, you know, when the humble parson comes along and says, oh, boo-hoo, there's a scary wizard with an army of goblins threatening our town, well, you just fall into that because that's that's what you expect out of these games. And they see this shady guy up in his castle surrounded by weird monsters. And Well, of course, they're not going to trust him. And if I they think, do... Uh... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, finish your thought. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, and if they do, well, then, okay. If that was the only layer of complexity in your game, you might want to revisit how you write games. <laughs> um, I think you kind of hit on it there that you can't cover things up and try to make your plot twistier by being secretive necessarily um, because I think the trouble with this game, giving a plot twist in this game, is that it could be revealed at any time. And it may not be a super dramatic, high-stakes moment where they figure this out. You might not get the, like, (gasps) moment, but you might get a, oh. And sometimes (laughs) that can be a little disappointing, too. Like, you're like, oh, I wish this could have stayed till later. I think um, someone asked about our plot twists we pulled off. and, And I'd say the only one I think I successfully pulled off is I had a character with a book, obsessed with this magical book, um, and he wanted to find more out more about it. He made it very mysterious, and so I kind of latched onto that. And I made it the the big bad guy was a, a lich, and I made the book his phylactery. So they killed him, and then he came back through the book. And uh, and for me, it was like super dramatic because they had they like created this big fortress, and they had they cast like hallow, and and but the lich was there the whole time in the book, right? So. Um, I was. I still don't know if I actually broke a rule by letting uh, letting him manifest in like a place where liches aren't supposed to get get to go. But um, so it kind of it was its own sort of moment. But you know, one of my players actually figured it out and actually sent message me beforehand. Uh, so it could have come up at some other time. And and there was yeah, it was it was big and dramatic. But um, but yeah, it was could have been just something like oh oh guess what. So in chat, uh, Dusty Vansity just or said something here a couple minutes ago that I think is great, which is plot twist is only as powerful as a player's buy-in to what's being twisted. And yeah, I think that's absolutely true because you can have plot twists or character development on just about anything, but they only care insofar as they're going to care about the thing that you're twisting. Um, one of the other examples I came up with in show prep was the video game Dead Space. Now, I don't know how many people listening have played Dead Space, so I'll give you a real short setup of the game. You play a character uh, named Isaac Clark, who is an engineer that's being sent to an abandoned, well, what's a spaceship that's gone dark, and it's what's called a planet cracker. They basically harvest whole planets for their resources. And you have a girlfriend that was part of this crew. And part of the reason you signed on to this mission was because you wanted to find your girlfriend. And throughout the whole game, you're getting these messages from her about how much danger she's in and about how much she loves you and all this kind of stuff. And you, it's a horror game. You know, there's all these terrible things going on, but you always get the sense you are pushing ahead no matter what because you care about her. And she's dead. She's been dead for like a year or two or three. 
And there are plot points and little hints all over the place that tell you she's dead and you are going insane. She's not really there. She's not talking to you. And in fact, uh, the, the plot objectives, the chapter names or whatever, the first letter of each, they spell out Sarah is dead. Um, I mean, that's how <laughs> they make sure you had every chance to see that, but you don't catch until the very end when they lay it out in irrefutable way that she is dead. But you spend that whole game, assuming you buy into the game's premise, pushing ahead because you care about trying to get your girlfriend back. Mm. And I think the same thing's true in a role-playing game, that if you want your players to at all you know, have that moment of standing up and throwing their books down and pacing around the table because they didn't see it coming, you know, that really positive but frustrated reaction, it's got to be something they cared about. You know, you, it's got to be a subversion of an expectation, but they have to have been feeling those expectations. Lyra Hart 88 asks, uh, would uh, plot twist benefit from the FTB rule of three? So, Dan, this is directed towards you, and uh, you also have to explain the fear the boot rule of three. Yeah, well, let me start by saying, because I want to give credit where it's due, that's actually not ours. We are big proponents of it. We did not create it. Um, we uh, picked it up from a blog, and I couldn't, if you look through our show notes, you'll find reference to it. it it's called the um, Three Clue Rule, and there was some other blogger that suggested this. Uh, but what the Three Clue Rule is, is it says that if you are going to place any mystery in a gaming party's path, you have to accept that being interactive fiction, they may not ask the question you want them to ask. They may not look at the, the particular thing you want them to see. And so the best way to make sure that they have a good shot of getting it is to have a clue appear three times. All right, so if there's a secret room, you don't have the only way to find it be the architectural plans in the basement. You have there be architectural plans in the basement and you have there be a draft in that room and you have there being a bookcase in front of that hidden door with scratch marks on the floor. You know, you put three clues with the thought being they're likely to find one of these clues. And my answer is yes. I think if you are going to expect them to feel like this was a good twist, to feel like they had every opportunity to see that this was going on, I think they should have had at least three opportunities to see that something was suspicious. Um, and this is where, man, I tell you, you can give them three and it almost doesn't matter because players <laughs> are so prejudiced and so suspicious. <laughs> they will chase the wrong thing. I mean, I don't know how many people listening to this are, are listening to Fear the Boots actual play, but this, this won't be a necessary reference to follow the gist of our conversation. But good God, the number of people that are convinced that Billings leaves the monster. It's because he's and, and he's a minor side <laughs> NPC who is effectively innocent of everything. But they're so convinced he's the big bad. And when they find out who the actual big bad is, oh, they're going to have, have had more than three clues. They just chose to ignore them. It's a real simple thing to say, but it, it's just, um, I, I would imagine the three of us have made this mistake and probably many people in the chat is that, you know, we, we make a clue too subtle. <laughs> it's oh, just, yeah. everybody does it, you know, like, 
Like mm-hmm. you said, you, you put it in there one time, you're like, well, when they go talk to the key NPC, they're going to ask him about this thing. And that person's going to nonchalantly mention in their, the paragraph. So obviously they're going to follow up on it. And, you know, that's where the rule of three comes into play is that, I mean, if it's seriously something that's important to you in this plot or the story or the game master, you got some moment you're working to, I mean, it's got to be mentioned there multiple times. Um, one, so they catch it in two, so that they realize it's a, it is that important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've, I've definitely made the mistake. I'd be like, why aren't they hearing this thing that I've been thinking about for 20 hours and had four dreams about this week? It's because they, did, they didn't. <laughs> um, but I think we're forgetting the, the plot twist that happens in every RPG um, as, you, as you continue on. Uh, at least what I've found is people start out being the good guys and then always, always, always end up questioning how good they are. Are we really the bad guys? I don't know if you guys have had that in your games, but that's what I found that at the end, they're like, wait a second, did we just kill that guy? Was he really guilty? I like to always kind of keep them not 100% sure if they're in the right. I I do that all the time. Um, You know, I've I've heard players tell other players of like, oh, well, if you're going to play with Pete, you kind of need to know this about how he gets into characters. And he really thinks that like, he likes the human areas, you know, like Mm a narrative story. And, and that's just it is that like, you know, the interesting thing about life is that it's not so black and white, totally. which, which can be great in role-playing games because it, it makes life simpler, you know, so that we can just sit back and throw some dice. But at the core of it, I mean, it doesn't have to be there every moment of every game, right? But at the core of it, I love it when they, you know, they have that moment, like you said, with Star Wars, where they get to the end and they, there's a reveal and they go, are we doing the right thing? You know? if we do this, like, or Ozymandias, like in Watchmen, you know, like, we're going to stop him. And then we get to the end. And even Dr. Manhattan, who's like, you know, Jesus incarnate or, you know, Superman goes, wow, now this is the only answer is we have to kill millions of people to maybe change society as we know it so that the human race will continue on. And the players get to make that choice because that's, Mm -hmm. that's the beauty of being a player, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that agency, but yeah, but I definitely don't make it easy on them, right? <laughs> and totally. I, hopefully that's for the better. Yeah, it makes kinda, it your game. That kind of just leads me to a topic that I just wanted to throw in there was that, um, you know, I think, I shouldn't say good GMs, but a lot of times as game masters, what's advisable is that we kind of create problems, but we don't necessarily tell them what the only solution is, right? We, we give them an open door to go walk through yeah. and they can find their own way there or even maybe they bust through the wall in a different place, but we tell them over here is a problem. Now let's hear how you want to solve it. And like, like we were leading to with all these things about plot twists is, I mean, it inherently does make an issue because the players have some idea of where we're going. The characters have some idea of where we're going, um, but how we get there, I mean, everything's a plot twist, right? Because <laughs> we, we don't necessarily know yeah. <laughs> unless yeah. you're really railroading them. And I don't mm. mean that in a negative way, you know, but that's a clear term for what happens when you don't. <laughs> That's an interesting point because you have, uh, yeah, unless you have a very clear picture of where everything's going. Yeah. And I, I in my experience, I, I try not to. I try to keep it quite loose and maybe have the big players in mind what they're doing. But uh, yeah, you may end up with some accidental twists along the way. Certainly. And that, that's the case. I think when we were talking about this earlier, even is that right? That's that's the common thing. Is like, oh, plot twist, plot twist, because <laughs> yeah. you, you you just didn't expect the things that they do, mm-hmm. and the um, directions they go in. I, and this is where I think it's important for a game master 
before even game one, that they have a good, good understanding of the world they've created because the players are fundamentally an unaccounted for variable. You know, they are agents of chaos. Uh, you don't have that in the book or movie. You have total control over what questions they ask and what places they go and how they pursue things. But, you know, when I set out a the plot of a role-playing game, there are two main things I try to make sure that are in place just in terms of the game world before first contact with the characters, which is number one, what is actually occurring in the world? So you have party A who's out there trying to kill the dragon, but in truth, they don't really care about the dragon either way. They just, they want to get rid of, they want to get its hoard of gold and then there's party B, which is a kingdom that's helping party A take out the dragon. That's because they've been promised half the gold, which they're going to use to fund a war effort against party C. And party C is trying to protect the dragon, not because they care about the dragon either, but because they don't want the other kingdom to have the money to prosecute its war. And you start to get these complexities that are going to occur irrespective of what the party does. And what I have found is the party will typically because there is that those levels of complexity and that level of moral ambiguity because in the game world i've just presented you have four parties you have a treasure hunting party kingdom a kingdom b and the dragon with that information alone there, there's total moral ambiguity as to who the good guy is maybe none of them is but the players are going to based on who they encounter and how these people present themselves and what they look like and what they appeal to in trying to win sympathy they're going to come up with their prejudices and make all kinds of presumptions about what they think is occurring here. When it, and they may or may not be right. And if they are right, well, that's fine. You know, once again, you, you can't force them down a blind alley uh, because that's uh, incredibly inconsistent and unfair. And I think moral ambiguity is a key to getting there because, of course, the bad guys are the bad guys. You know, if your world and if your world's that simple, because that's the game you want to run, that's fine. But just understand that the plot twists get harder to do if there are always orcs and the orcs are always chaotic evil. Mm. You know, then well, when they encounter the orcs, there's not going to be a whole lot of shock to the situation here. Mm-hmm. You made me think of factions I mean, when you were talking, Dan. You know, it's funny on how many video games use factions in like an open world sandbox sort of setting, you know, very similar to role playing games, because factions kind of give like almost an illusion of choice, or I should say they make a world that's very open in choice, a multiple choice. <laughs> you know, like they give you choice A, choice B, choice C, choice D, like pick which faction you align with, which kind of gives us some idea of where you're going loosely because those factions have their place in the, the story and the setting in the world of where they're moving. Um, I, I don't know that we, I'm probably, uh, well, I, we do that in role-playing games. I think a 13th age, right? That's a game where we clearly took that technology and said, let's drop factions in here. So more players will be more aligned with specific factions that they can, you know, uh, bond over or fight against, but it, it does create something more controllable, more manageable for a GM. Yeah, people like, they like very clearly to find lines and, and they like to have their team with their colors and, you know, you you, you get that sort of tribal mentality and, and people will buy into it. So you could, yeah, I guess it, it, it provides maybe, 
higher level detail to play with rather than like, oh, this person's servant saw that person take the scroll and, and you know, it's not that, that simple. It's like this faction uh, has been spying on this other faction and you can, you, the lines are a little bit more clear. So you might have some opportunity there. Um, for I can see layers too, right? Like, layers, yeah. like you, you, you agree with the faction, but you don't agree with the person who becomes your contact in the faction. Totally. Which gives us more of that, not uh, more ambiguity, but like maybe even like interpretation, right? Like this is the goal, but how you want to do it, that's evil. How I want to do it, that's great. You know, and then yeah. we have infighting yeah. within. Um, Dusty Van said he had a good question. How many plot twists are too many? Have you played in games in the past where someone gave you plot <laughs> twist fatigue? I, I'd say there's definitely a limit. <laughs> you made me think of like some bad episode of like the regular show or something. It's like where the guys are always like plot twist. <laughs> it's like, just when you thought it was happening outside the house in the park, we're in city hall. And then it's just like, you know, it's just gonzo. Like everything just keeps changing. <laughs> yeah. The kind of another character's hand all of a sudden. Uh, you know, the big thing just, you know, drop jumping on the topic is that like, we kind of talked earlier is that, you got to build up to it. I, mm. I mean, it, it's got to have investment. It's kind of like you can't, okay, this is very contentious, but when you're trying to get your players to like hate a person, of course you can get them to not like a person, right? They just mm -hmm. want to stab them and be done with them. But like to really get them to hate the individual, that takes like time. It takes yeah. frustrating. It takes brooding. It takes, I, I was going to do something, but I couldn't because they're untouchable. Like, and, and that's kind of a good plot twist is they, they, they have to be able to, they have to get invested in it and they have to start, you know, it's starting to need stakes, right? And they have to, over time, be able to like start guessing. Like that has to become fun and then boom, right? Yeah, yeah. And then if it's boom and then boom and then boom, uh, it's got to be something very delicate and specific that works perfectly for that situation. I mean, I can't imagine. Otherwise, I mean, you already, you already just dumped the adrenaline right? Like, you yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to, you want, to, I mean, I would say if you're going to have many plot twists, you should really just have one big one. Like don't, don't plan out a million of them or, or a couple of, even a couple big ones could be too much. Cause then even after the second one, they'd be like, okay, so it wasn't that guy. It was this guy, but then it wasn't this guy. It was the other guy. So what? Like, I don't, I don't, they don't know if they can trust you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah. or, or they, have they, you been they, reading the right notes? Are you reading the notes for your last <laughs> six different games? Like, just, yeah, or they and check players out. Players will do that for you, right? Like players are already going to give you the added plot twists in a role playing game. Like you will have your plot twist, and mm -hmm. they'll be like, "Oh, but then so and so kills you because of what happened in the plot twist," and then that person like leaves the faction and leaves the party, you know? And you're like, "Okay, I didn't see any of those dominoes falling." Pete, there was something you were talking about before we were recording, which is, what was the show? Somebody's talking about how humans can only meaningfully yeah. track simultaneously yeah. something like four. I, I wish I would have, you know, like prepped notes on it, but I have a pretty good idea. So there's um, the design panel cast that's put on by Jason Pitt of uh, Genesis of Legend Publishing. He goes around and he collects podcasts that are like panels, basically at different conventions. Um, so they're great. Like you get workshops and seminars on like how to Kickstarter and how to work with artists, all kinds of great stuff. Um, but one of them was like how to like learn from LARPs, like to improve your tabletop games. And it was with Jason Morningstar who made a fiasco. 
and he was talking about research they had seen was that like the human mind can only wrap their head around like four different relationships at the same time. So I remember these numbers, but you know, if there's more detail here to, to dive into, but like a good movie with a good plot twist will hang out in this sort of like, there's five or six people that are interconnected doing different things that could be all related because you just like some kind of poor internet connection will start dropping packets. And then sometime towards the middle, you'll be like, oh yeah, I do remember that. And, oh my God. And then they do the flashback and it's like, and the guy was in the hallway and I forgot his grandma had asked him why his coat was wet. And you put it together and you think it's a masterful plot twist. But sometimes what we do poorly and what they're also telling us is there's a range. Like if you, if you put in five to eight relationships, like different connections between core characters or core people, um, you're in that range where that can still happen. But once you go like 10 to 14, like some bad movies do or bad RPGs, um, the players will all be like, fuck this. I can't remember anything that's going on. What happened? Where is everyone going? Why are we doing that? And that creates a bad experience. So you just want to teeter right outside like the human brain <laughs> processing area. But the hard part is um, the role-playing game inherently is a player who has probably four other players. So it, it literally saying, if you're thinking about four or five rich player characters, like riches in like characters that you have to remember story about and stuff, um, you might be about tapped out. So if, we, if the GM is playing with people who are like, you know, Dan's NPC uncle and Scrim's like NPC boss's cousin, and those are people are doing stuff, as long as it, like, everyone doesn't have that kind of an extra person, um, the players may find that be like, oh yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that Dan's character was doing this thing and Scrim's you know, uh, boss was doing this other thing and it was connected behind the scenes the whole time. Um, but again, coordinating that a role-playing game is very difficult because you don't have any veils. So, so I wonder with, um, a, if you had PCs that had interconnected NPCs and you made that a point from the start, like tell me about one person you both know um, and then you can build off that because then you're kind of because each person has that capacity sure right for six or so people maybe then you're you're gonna create like oh but don't you remember this and don't you remember that and it's one of the benefits of of um of being married if i forget somebody i'm like who was that guy the blah, blah, blah. you know that's yeah yeah and that's a great point is that and you mentioned a good point earlier too um it may have been right before the show was that um you know, if one person is focusing on one relationship that is the core one, that's like the murderer or the whodunit or hid the thing in the beginning and didn't mean to, um, you know, they're going to catch on it. It's, it's about, but if you're giving them like a movie, like the murder, murder on the Orient Express, where like everyone's a suspect, um, hopefully there's not that many people on the train because otherwise you're going to lose everyone and they're going to get pissed off. Yeah. Which, I mean, I, I think it's okay in the course of a role-playing game for there to be more than four to six sure. you know, parties at play, but you have to understand that there can only be so many that are significant. Uh, this is going to be another somewhat obscure reference on my part, but there was a video game series that came out years back. It was supposed to be six games, got pared down to three, and it was just, an, it, it had a lot of potential as an absolute mess, and this was the Xenosaga games, which were somehow connected to Xenogears and Xenoblade. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not clear on all that. But they did a terrible job of pacing because in the first act of the first game, they introduced questions. That's normal. You know, add complexity. 
And then the second act added questions. And the third act added questions. And then the second game, first act, second act, third act added questions. The third game, first act, second act added questions. You just have no idea. I mean, every time they even slightly answer one question, they raise 10 more. Yeah. And by the time that they had to wrap everything up at the end of the third game, it felt so forced, so rushed. And, you know, I had not, I, I had long since given up tracking what was going on. And I, you couldn't. I mean, nobody outside of the insane minds, I mean, I don't know, Hideo Kojima probably exists in this plane, but no other human being functions in this way. That's why in the example I gave, there were only uh, four parties outside of the players, which is, you know, you have the adventuring party that's been hired to kill the dragon, Kingdom A that hired the adventuring party, Kingdom B that's at war with Kingdom A, and then the dragon itself. And if you want to add in things, if you want to tie this back to the players, you can keep fishing from that same pool. So, for example, the adventuring party that's killing a dragon for Kingdom A to get the horde. And Kingdom A is outfitting them and giving them hirelings and stuff to help them in return for a cut of the treasure to fund their war with Kingdom B. And maybe part of the reason the adventuring party is going along with this is because one of the, the like the captain of that group, his niece was killed by Kingdom B. Well, maybe if the players say, oh, you know, I have a sister. Well, maybe the sister was the mother of that same niece, right? I mean, you can start to tie all these things mm -hmm. back together mm -hmm. to where the party and these same groups start to overlap. Well, in the adventuring party, the NPC one, by virtue of saying, well, we want to help Kingdom A because of the fact that Kingdom B killed one of the guy's nieces. And so in truth, this isn't about profit to at least one of them. Well, you know, once again, you're, you're back to playing off of those same four relationships. I, these might be new individuals, but I don't need to introduce new axes uh, to the story. You know, there are not new suspects. There are not whole new elements to this. I think a great example of doing this right would be something like Fallout New Vegas. And Fallout New Vegas, I mean, what are the possible endings? You can side with uh, yourself and, and uh, do what's called the wild card, where basically you take control of everything. You can side with a guy who's been trying to manipulate uh, New Vegas, a guy named uh, Mr. House. You can side with this, this kind of this lawful evil group called Caesar's Legion or this sort of really chaotic good group. You know, it's really corrupt, but not necessarily bad called the New California Republic. And they give you, I think, at least passable re reasons to side with all of them. And there are tons of people to meet and tons of things going on and tons of interrelationships between you and these different groups and the people you meet in these groups and the minor factions you meet in these groups, but it always keeps centering back to those really those four axes of power. You know, you don't really have to track 25 different factions because you can typically lump anyone you run into into the context of one of those four factions. Yeah. So, you know, like with what you were saying, I, you know, it's nice because it's also furthering develop like this, you know, relationship thing. Cause we throw out something and then is it actionable? Like can the GMs that are, you know, paying attention, listen, like use it in any way. And I think that's a very good point is that 
you know, while four relationships could be your four players, a lot of people play Dungeons and Dragons and their party isn't full of interesting characters that have interesting, unique um, personal vendettas and sagas of their own, right? So that may not be a core relationship that's something that's, um, you know, that the story's focusing on is the interpersonal relationships of your, your party members. It may be, uh, you know, four main elements of uh, significant relationships that, that apply to the mission or the ongoing campaign. Um, so you don't feel that, yeah, right, like you can have 12 characters. <laughs> and another thing that's interesting about role-playing games is, you know, like we're talking about pacing too. Like you move in a story at a snail's pace. So each session may be having a handful of core like elements that are ongoing for them to keep track of at one time is really what we're talking about is don't, don't give them the situation like Dan mentioned where, you know, everything is opening 24 more questions because they're just overwhelmed and unfulfilled and don't even know where to go next. And a lot of times in a role-playing game, unfortunately, you don't have the time to follow down all those leads. Even sometimes in a Call of Cthulhu game, you do because we can, we jump in the car, go to the library. All right. I go to the books, I research role. You know, cool. Uh, I'm going back to my office. I check my filing cabinet. I make a phone call. Roll. Cool. You know, so some games maybe could do that, but plenty of games, you know, you can't follow all those leads. So don't create more, more less is more in this case, right? But having a handful is useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't create too much work for yourself too, right? Yeah. Can you imagine that? I said yeah. all that. I didn't Keep think about track. it. Yeah. As um, Eric likes to mention, as a as a person who makes games where I don't have to prep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, you know something, just small talk, is because we're getting back, we're getting towards the end. Um, Dan, one of the interesting things you mentioned earlier too was that you were talking about Dead Space, and I was very curious. It's kind of a tangent, right? But um, do you think Sarah was like a defense mechanism for Isaac to survive? Yes, I, I yeah. think she was. I, and I think that's one of the things that's, you get the sense that the the alien threat you're dealing with has some kind of a force behind it. And unfortunately, the Dead Space series went kind of weird on the third entry and has been left uh, idle for a while now. So they've never fully developed this. But there's some kind of of mind or something that is behind that alien threat and you don't know if that's a hive mind that they share or some third party you have yet to encounter but you unquestionably get the sense that in the process of screwing with isaac's mind it cannot it's not creating things out of nothing it's not creating things ex nihilo the insanity is based on things he already believes, hopes, fears, whatever. It's toying with what's already there. And, you know, I think if we talk about plot twists in general, this goes back to what we were talking about before. You cannot subvert an expectation if the expectation isn't there or the players don't care about it. Yeah. You know, the fact that Isaac, and by extension you as the person playing Isaac, have a certain view of Sarah and certain investment in her, you know, that creates, I think, a willingness to accept because i mean i I was even as i was playing the game i'm thinking the whole time as i'm looking around the ship and the death and decay and just the destruction it's like and i think you do encounter one or two survivors but i mean this is like one or two out of thousands and thousands and thousands of people and i mean it's like there's no way she's still alive i mean you know it's implausible but some part of you clings on to that because you kind of expect it to be true on some level because 
you know, implausible things happen in stories and you keep getting messages from her and that's why you came from her. So surely there's going to be some payoff there, right? And there is a payoff, but it's not the payoff that Isaac was hoping for. Yeah. Well, and I think too that you're... Um, I'm not familiar with the game, but so correct me if I'm wrong. You're also trusting the storyteller. You, the player, are like, well, you wouldn't bring me through all this if it was for nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, and the storyteller, of course, in that case is um, Isaac's perception of the world. And you don't know at this point in the series that his mind, while he has... He's kind of like Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings. He has managed to resist and retain his humanity through things that have destroyed other people, but he's not okay. Hmm. And his, the erosion of his sanity is occurring throughout that game, but you don't really grasp the depth of the damage he's taken until the very end of the game. Very cool. And then by the second game, uh, I mean, that starts with him waking up in an asylum, and he's even doubting himself. He doesn't believe, and as he narrates the game or as he says things to people you encounter, he doesn't believe himself, um, yeah. even when he sees things that are plainly in front of him. Um, One and of the so things you, I like about this is that this is actually an actionable plot twist that I think you can have as a game master, is that you can, we can do that, right? We can have a one-on-one right. -on -one relationship where um, the person is having thoughts that are you know, spiraling out of control because th that's something that we can manage as a plot twist that, um, okay, you were doing this, but it was your body's, your will to survive, right? And then giving them something that's still satisfactory that may give the rest of the party a, an interesting moment where they're like, holy shit, there is no Sarah? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mm -hmm. one of the nice things about interactive media like role-playing games, as opposed to a... Uh, something that's like a, a movie or a book is you can react to the players. I mean, we talked about the fact that player choice and player interaction creates problems and, and chaos and uncertainty, or maybe they uncover a mystery too fast or too slowly, but you, these, they're also your greatest asset because you get to hear that real-time feedback of, you know, if they're starting to suspect something, well, you can choose to either play off those fears or to maybe play down those fears by making somebody else look a little more guilty than they are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you can choose to adapt what you are doing. You know, if they're figuring out who's guilty too quickly, okay, you can either let that one go and work on something else, or you can choose to obfuscate that a little bit, you know, by, by like I said, you know, pumping the brakes on some of the clues or upping some other clues or, or whatever you need to do, you have the ability to adapt and adjust to what you're hearing. Whereas with a book, if it's a bad mystery author and somebody figures out by the second chapter who did it, I mean, you're stuck. That's, you so know, I they're think, frustrated um, halfway through. I think that method that, you know, kind of bringing, uh, it's almost like, just tilting their focus to one thing or another. Uh, there is a show that has done that really well, uh, and that is Broadchurch. Um, I, I think it's a BBC show. BBC show. It's British anyway, um, and uh, it's a it's a murder mystery. And you go through ten episodes, and and they just shift your focus from person to person. You're like, no, for sure they did that. For sure they were they're the one. And then you kind of go back and forth and back and forth. And then, but as you go along, you're getting real clues things that actually happened and then 
by the end, you know, you, you have kind of a person who's the right physical shape and but you don't realize there it's also a big t- twist as well. And when you get to that, you're like, ah, how did I not like that one just sucked me right in. <laughs> uh, so that, that one I think is a really good example of that kind of just pushing your focus back and forth. It doesn't have the interactivity obviously, but, but it's still, yeah, good example. Another one, an RPG one is the adventure zone, uh, their balance arc. They did a pretty cool twist as well. So if you're all looking for twists, then those are my recommendations. How about that feeling, right? That's why we're even talking about it is there is a very rewarding, satisfying feeling, even though they pulled one like over you, you know, like they got one by you, you didn't catch it, but it's something that makes you really appreciate the craft and the medium that you enjoyed and makes you want to come back for more. And so, I mean, that's obviously why we we can speak an hour on it because it's so valuable. Yeah, it creates emotional investment. It also creates a sense that you want to pay attention because you don't know what's going to happen. An utterly predictable story is a boring story. That's for sure. Um, You know, if you see everything happening before it happens, you don't care. And um, there was a video game that I was mentioning other than Dead Space prior to the show. It's a uh, mix of a walking simulator or a murder mystery called the Payne's Creek Killings. And uh, the setup of it is that you are a reporter going to a town that has been abandoned and condemned where a mayor's wife was murdered and they never solved it. And you have like one night or something like that to solve this murder before you have to go back and then they're going to bulldoze this town to put down a freeway or something and the, the evidence is gone forever. And they give you things in game, like they give you an in-game notebook. They give you a camera where you can, it's like if you walk past a, uh, a, a corkboard and notice something on there like, oh, meeting tonight at so- seven o'clock and so-and-so is presenting. Well, okay, you know where they were at seven. So you take a picture of that and add it to your photo book. You better believe I was invested. So I'm like, I am not going to let them pull this over on me. <laughs> you know, I'm going to figure this out. I'm not going to be surprised at the end by who did it. And sure enough, I was able to figure it out. I called who did it before the end of the game. And it was a ton of fun doing it. And I think even if people were half asleep prior to the first plot twist, you've got their attention now. Because, you know, if they're decent players, they don't want to be hoodwinked for the second one. All right, we're almost out of time. So let's go uh, and... Tell everybody where they can find you. We'll start with you, Dan. Oh, I will give a note real quick here, and I want to give the name, but this is like a lime green name. A Merrill Blade? No, the husband did not do it. Um, <laughs> but my name is Dan, and you can find me on the Fear the Boot podcast at feartheboot.com or our actual plays at ap.feartheboot.com. Okay, Pete. Okay. Uh, as you can see, you can find me at, at Van Branner on Twitter. Um, imagining games on Facebook. Um, one of the big things I want to draw your attention to is that if you want to go to Gen Con, um, we are offering free GM badges for just eight hours of running events. Uh, most of the games that we have, which is like over 30 titles you can pick from, um, you will get a free copy of the game as well. So uh, if you want to find out more information about that, um, if I know that you're going to, you're planning to volunteer by like a week from now, I can even schedule the events when you want them. So uh, go to the Indie Game Developer Network uh, on Facebook or on Twitter, and you'll find it in one of the most recent posts. We keep hammering those out. So. Okay, Scrum. 
Wow, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal, Pete. $120 plus free, right? Spend that on games. Yeah. No, I can't uh I can't go to Gen Con because I'm I'm pregnant. I'm gonna have like a two month old, so <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. Um but that's not neither here nor there. I uh I am Scrim. You can find me on the Shadowcaster Network. Like I said, tomorrow night I'll be playing some leverage. Um normally on uh, Join the Anarchy every other Monday. So yeah, come hang out with us at Shadowcasters. All right. Well, thank you, Dan, Pete, and Scrim for hosting this week. Um, also, thank you to Gaming with Gage, uh, Dusty Van City, and uh, Lyra Heart eighty eight for some awesome, awesome questions and comments. Uh, also, thank you, Amara Blade and uh, Lyra Heart eighty eight uh, for subbing to this episode. Um, next week's hosts are Wayne, Chad, and Nick, uh, and we are live every Sunday at nine p.m. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Good night. See you.